Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Edgar Villanueva. Edgar is a globally recognized expert on social justice philanthropy. He currently serves as Senior Vice President at the Schott Foundation for Public Education, where he oversees grant investments and capacity building support for education justice campaigns across the U.S. Edgar is also an award-winning author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance, a best-selling book offering hopeful and compelling alternatives to the dynamics of colonization in the philanthropic and social finance sectors. And Liberated Capital, a decolonizing wealth fund, is a giving circle created by Edgar that's online at grapevine.org. To date, their Native American Community Response Fund for COVID has already raised nearly $400,000. We have so much to discuss today, so without further ado, Edgar, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Laura, this is when you take the first question. Sorry, I had a weird glitch on my screen. Hi, Edgar. Good morning. Hey, good morning-ish. Oh, yeah. It's good morning for me. Almost good afternoon for y'all. So one of the questions we've been asking all of our guests is just to ground us is, is how are you and how's your community doing? For me personally, it's day to day. I am fortunate to have a job in these times that I can work from home. So I'm grateful for that. And I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm very fortunate to have a backyard, which is a rare thing here. So I do have moments where I can have some outdoor time there. So it's kind of day to day. I think like everyone, I have my moments of personal anxiety and fear and just sadness. I'm holding a lot of grief around what's happening here in New York City, but also just around the world. My community in particular, it's what's causing me a lot of pain and You guys have probably seen the headlines. Native communities across the country are greatly impacted, and especially right now in the Southwest with the Navajo Nation and the Pueblos across New Mexico. So I'm daily kind of tracking and checking in with people there and doing everything I can to help from here in New York to support those communities. Yeah, we've noticed that some of our guests, and Tim gave us a background on your bio and told us some things about you, but a lot of our guests have sort of, how they introduced themselves has shifted a little bit. So how are you introducing yourself right now? And what are you thinking is sort of your primary means of working in service right now? I think the way I would sort of introduce myself is sharing who my people are. Where I'm from, originally in North Carolina, we say, who's your people when we meet someone new? My people, for the most part, are Black and Brown Indigenous people who are on the side of justice, fighting for social justice and liberation, those progressive white brothers and sisters and relatives that are a part of this struggle as well. I work often in and around spaces of philanthropy and really find myself connected to and building community with people who are organizing resources for community. So I kind of get up every day with a passion for moving money specifically into communities of color and Native communities. I think of myself as um, someone from the South. That's a big part of my identity. I am from North Carolina. I'm an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe, which is the largest Native American tribe east of the Mississippi River. I think of myself as a spiritual person and as a person that is really connected to community and a person who's committed to healing in my own life, but also helping to support healing in others. You wrote Decolonizing Wealth. And I want to thank you personally for taking the time to write that book. I read it last fall when I was traveling to Grant Makers in the Arts Conference. 
in Denver. Most of the sessions were focused on social justice, racial equity. And then I flew immediately to the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit outside of Austin, Texas. And your book has been deeply meaningful in my own journey in anti-racism, anti-oppression, and then to sit with the ideas, having arrived at Grant Makers of the Arts, and then go to Conscious Capitalism and take my colleagues' thoughts with me from when I told them at Grant Makers of the Arts where I was going. I'm wondering, for those who haven't read it, if you can talk about what led you to write the book and maybe how some of the ideas that you put in the book have evolved or changed in light of current events. So I think what led me to write the book... It's interesting. A lot of folks have approached me like they think they may want to write a book. And I think personally, for me, writing a book is a calling. I felt like I had a story inside of me that had to come out, that it wasn't even a choice. I had to get it out. And I think what was driving that was just my personal experience as a Native American person who had found themselves working in this crazy world of institutional philanthropy, which is sort of a mystery to a lot of folks. I came from poverty. I came from a position of not having a lot of power. And when I got into this field, I automatically was at the table with a lot of power and a lot of access to resources. And in a place that has this facade of doing good in the world. And I initially thought early on in my work that, wow, this is how I'm very fortunate to be a part of this sector that's so aligned with wanting to make change in the world. All I ever wanted to do in life was kind of make a difference. And there's so much that transpired in my career and in my journey where I began to be really disillusioned about the role of philanthropy at the sector. And I just sort of began uncovering other parts of our work that are kind of hidden away and began to just question what the net value of this work was in actuality. I experienced a lot of pain personally. And then I saw that a lot of people like me, especially people of color, women, queer folks, people coming from marginalized backgrounds, found it very difficult to work in the space and often did not last very long. And I began just sort of journaling about my own experiences and my pain and trying to find meaning in doing this work. Should I be in this field? Is there another place where I'm actually supposed to be? Is this legitimate? And just really through that process of journaling and having conversations with a lot of people who got a shared experience, I realized, well, I think there's a story here where it really began to become clear to me is that the experience that I had, this is so much about money and it is so much about philanthropy in the nonprofit sector, but it's actually a shared experience across sectors and for many people in the world. And wanting to get to a place of like real change, real transformation, what are the lies that we're telling ourselves and what is the truth that's hidden away that we need to bring to the surface and really grapple with once and for all if we're really going to move forward as philanthropy, as institutions that could be in a right relationship with community, but also just as people in community and as people that live in this country that has yet to go through that type of process. And so it really... I don't know. I think in short, it was writing the book was my own healing journey. Where I landed with the book is not where I thought I was going to land. It was going to be something very different. But my own experience of healing throughout writing that process began to kind of steer me toward a different vision for what I wanted to offer the sector. One of the really, there's so much that resonated with me. One of the things that I have held is philanthropy 
have often investment portfolios that support the 5% that then they give out. And in the it's not a dichotomy, it's the tension between where you might be investing could be 95% undermining the money that you're giving out. And we're seeing this increasingly, responsible investing, where are you putting your money to make sure that it's in line with your values as an organization? And certainly from our own standpoint at Fractured Atlas, thinking where we've invested, does it align with our anti-racism, anti-oppression commitments? And how can we move toward that has been something that certainly is, well, was quite appreciated. So I'll end the part of where I talk about how excited <laughs> I was to read your book and how cool it is to have you on our show. And so Lauren, you can take this in a different direction now. Yeah, you're totally nerding out. I, I am. That. This is amazing. Like, look, you, you know, are it's like, absolutely geeked out right now. If you cannot have a live stream where you get to hang out with cool people who you always wanted to meet, what's Don't the purpose of a live stream? Throw the live stream in the trash if you can't do that. That's right. Very much so. <laughs> The transfer of wealth thing resonates with me as a former fundraiser or retired fundraiser, whatever I am, because we're seeing right now in so much of the recovery stimulus package, CARES Act, that we're seeing hundreds of billions of dollars of wealth transfer from the federal government. And the latest data, I think, says that probably at least 90% of that is going to wealthy white people. And I think our audience is really going to have to grapple with that reality because I think businesses that we care about are going to just be gone. And people that we love are not going to be employed. And there's just so much fantastic work that's going to be lost as this wealth is transferred. Do you have any words around strategies that we can sort of use to start to recover from this or to even grapple with how this is happening in the United States yet again? Money always tells a story. And it's I've had people to say, well, it's not wealth isn't just about money. What about other kinds of wealth? I do think of wealth more broadly, but money is this very tangible thing that really tells a story about where our values are and what we care about. Budgets are a story. And so historically, the way that money has been used reflects how people in power think and feel about people of color and indigenous people. Philanthropy, where money goes and where it doesn't go, also paints a picture on what is really important, regardless of what we say on our websites or what our missions are. The money tells the story of what life we're really about. And I think in these stimulus packages, you see the same thing happening in terms of who was prioritized in these relief efforts. We see first and foremost that corporations, first corporations, then small business, and then people, and then tribes, right? Indigenous communities are mm-hmm. at the very bottom. So I think for folks who hold access to resources are the gatekeepers of these resources where they make decisions around where to put the money. It's just a direct reflection of what's really important to them and what they care about. It's obvious when you look at the big picture of how capital is moving through the world, in general, there is a disconnection from people and a disconnection from the planet. It's like a separation-based economy. So the only response to that that I have is I think we have to have a fundamental shift in our worldview and our values and maybe like the silver lining in this pandemic My hope is that this situation has shook us to our core to wake us up, to help us remember what's really important. What is really important? Right now, there's a lot of things that I thought were important six months ago that I do not care about right now. Like I thought it was important to step out of my house, like dress to the nines, look at this. (laughs) Right now, I don't care about that, (laughs) right? I could care less. You still look good. Thank you. 
But you know, like, don't you feel like even celebrities and people that we tend to track, where are they right now? And like, none of that stuff seems, everything feels so superficial. What seems most important in this moment is that we take care of people and that we survive this pandemic together. I hope in some small way that that awakening for some people like sticks and that we figure out and understand that the inequalities that have been exposed to this pandemic are unacceptable and that there is a different way that we can show up as leaders and community as folks who have the responsibility to care for the public that we can learn from the, the failures and begin to design a different type of future that does center people and the planet that's my hope and prayer and the only way I see us getting out of this and not repeating that cycle over and over in the future. Speaking about designing a future, we talk a lot about on this live stream about the workplace and what's happening right now with so many people so unprepared as organizations to now be working remote. Or And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit from about your work at the Shot Foundation, because you're working in, in education justice. And at the same time that we're seeing this from workplaces, we're also seeing schools where people are wrestling with both of these at the same time. Sorry, I just said a puppy whining at the door. So <laughs> Train of thought, Tim. Wonder if you can talk about like what you're doing right now, hopes for the future there, and how can we use this time to build that future that works for everyone, not just for some. Schools are communities too, and they're very, very important communities. I think of schools as really some of the remaining kind of institutions in our communities that represent our democracy. Like the right to a quality public education is one of the fundamental rights of our democracy. And it's sad to me that that is actually under attack. (laughs) What I'm hearing and seeing from our partners at the Schott Foundation right now is who have been fighting to preserve that right to uh, education for all kids in this country. I've been hearing that A lot of the challenges facing communities, especially communities of color that we focus on and prioritize in our work, that kids are not having access to food, of course, that where feeding was happening in schools, kids not having access to mental health supports and safe places, young people not having the resources, the technology and the equipment they need to do this distance learning. So a lot of the challenges that young people of color are already facing in trying to have access to the same rights and privileges as others have been exacerbated in this moment. The folks that we support at the Schott Foundation are the parents, the students, the teachers who organize and are working to build power in communities to ensure that communities of color and parent voice and student voice, those voices are at the table when decisions are being made about our young people. And so my concern is in this moment is that we're being distracted, of course, by this emergency and this crisis, which is critical. It's something we have to do, but we also have to watch because in every disaster, you know, disaster capitalism, This happened in New Orleans right after Katrina, where privatizers came in and completely dismantled the public education system there and privatized it and folks with corporate agendas. And so I'm very concerned at this moment what could be happening and what plans are being put in place to erode public education in this country and to look at our young people as commodities or to look at dismantling these institutions of democracy in our communities that, especially for communities of color, they are like our homes and like such a critical part of our identity and a place where we feel safe. 
And so that's what we're thinking about at SHOT right now. It's both the immediate response, like what do we need to do right now to make sure that young people are okay and safe and have food and have the equipment to continue their learning, but also working with our advocacy partners and our network to understand what do we need to be thinking about right now when kids get ready to return to school, hopefully in the fall. What type of schools are they going to be coming into? What type of supports will they need as a result of this additional trauma that has been placed on them? And how do we continue to fight for the right to a public education when there is a movement that's trying to dismantle that? Yeah, I think that's spot on, in particular linkage to the sort of rise of the charter movement in New Orleans after Katrina. That was super wild. In terms of knowledge, my wife works for the public education department here in New Mexico. and We've been talking a lot about what kids learn in school and when. And full disclosure, I'm a total prepper. So I'm like a survivalist kind of freak out person. So she's like, great, you know, Lauren's got something to really sink her teeth into on this one. But when you spoke last year at Native Women Lead, and I was there and listened, it was the first time I had heard you speak. I was really, and I hold on to this idea that you shared around Indigenous wisdom being something that so many of us are looking for right now, even if we don't know that's what it is. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about that stream of thought in particular, because as a lifelong learner, we talk about K through 12 and then higher ed, but there is this sort of lifelong relationship with each other and with the planet that I think is particularly important right now. Absolutely. For me as a a native person who did not grow up in my community, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. I was the only native in my school I didn't really know any other Native Americans outside my immediate family until I got to college. And I sort of have been on this quest for many, many years to like reconnect and like to be like Indian enough. Is there something I've missed by this experience? And frankly, I had internalized dominant culture or white dominant ways of being in so many ways because of the society that we live in, frankly. And it's funny, as I was writing the book, I spent a lot of time talking to elders and really trying to get to like, what are those nuggets of indigenous wisdom that I need to be to need to understand and practice in my own life? What did I perhaps miss because I didn't grow up on a reservation or in a native community in that way? And as I was learning some of these and hearing these stories and kind of jotting down these pieces of wisdom, I understood in that moment that that wisdom has always been with me because it it was in my body. I had inherited these ideas. I had just lost my way. And so part of the call to understand Indigenous wisdom is an invitation to everyone to return to your original instructions. When you look back in your own family's history, regardless of where you come from, What I have found is that many of us have a shared sense of values and a way of being that was communal, that was tribal, that was about ensuring that we were all cared for, and that was handed down to all of us. And somewhere along the way, we've lost those identities. The idea of all my relations, that we are all inherently connected, and that our interdependence is inescapable. We've lost our weight with that because we've assimilated to this idea of being American and individual and ideas of competition. And so it's not like we have or I have like these secrets over here that we're not telling anybody that are like, it's a worldview that I think we all can share. And it goes back to like our own families. And it simply just comes down to like really placing 
people at the center of everything we do and understanding ideas like seven generations, right? Every decision that I make today impacts generations to come for seven generations. If we actually hold that value and that mindset that like, wow, my decisions will impact people outside of my immediate family for generations to come. Every choice I make impacts others. Every choice I make impacts this planet. That's a whole nother lens to like bring to how we show up in the decisions that we make. We have subscribed to this false way of being where we think if it's not happening in my backyard, then it doesn't impact me. And that's why corporations can dump toxic waste like right down the street and sleep just fine at night because like, oh, it's not in my backyard. It doesn't impact me. Well, we all know that the toxic waste is getting into the water that we all drink. And we're all going to die because of it, because regardless of our backgrounds, we are all connected. So those are the nuggets of indigenous wisdom that I share in the book and bring to life through storytelling and really understanding the process that we can engage on personally to remember our original instructions. Thank you. I want to combine both a viewer question and a question about the Native American Community Response Fund. So viewer question, curious about the processes of requesting and receiving funding, which tend to favor large organizations with staff and capacity to complete that process. So the question is, what are you changing to open the door wider? And the other question is, as it relates to funding, and what is the Native American Community Response Fund and how does it work? And I would just put those two questions together as we're making decisions that do influence seven generations from now. I think in two ways, I'm trying to make a difference. One is being a disruptor in this space, speaking truth to power and really pushing philanthropy and inviting philanthropy into a loving conversation about the reality of all the barriers and things that are in place that are prohibiting the flow of resources to organizations that are deemed to not have the capacity, which is a whole nother thing, right? So we know within philanthropy, only 8% of grants actually go to communities of color. So I am challenging my colleagues in this space through my work at the Shot Foundation, through my work with Decolonizing Wealth to hold up a mirror and do that hard work of like, where am I perpetuating a colonizer mindset or colonial dynamics that are inherent in this system that have to be dismantled in order to liberate those resources and move money to where the heart is the worst, which for me is in communities of color. The other thing, part two of my response would be, we need to find ways to move faster and to just move capital into communities of color like today. We don't have the luxury to sit back for people to like catch up and understand and think about it. And especially when by far the folks who are making those decisions in philanthropy are still white men. And so I'm pushing folks to get on their own learning journeys and do this work and shift their grant making practices and bring DEI all the way around into your work. But at the same time, look for these opportunities to move capital now. There are people of color led organizations and institutions and philanthropic intermediaries like the Shot Foundation, like what I'm doing with this Native Response Fund, who already have the analysis and have the relationships to move that money in a way that centers community and justice like today. And so one example, as you mentioned, Tim, we are running a rapid response fund to support Native communities through decolonizing wealth called the Native American Community Response Fund. And what I say with this fund, well, let me just say that the fund is about 
supporting Native-led organizations who are on the front lines responding, providing relief, providing support. So food, housing, shelter, access to medical care, the whole nine yards. And we're funding across the U.S. We begin looking in the urban centers where we have large Native populations supporting there. And as the pandemic has shifted and now the nation, Navajo, is now a hot spot, we're moving resources there as well. What I would say about Liberated Capital, which is the giving circle that we have at Decolonizing Wealth supporting this fund, is that this is not about charity. This is about solidarity. So going right back to what we've been talking about, we're not asking for a handout in our communities. We are extending a lifeline into your own humanity to be and into your own liberation and healing by giving to our communities. I think this transfer of wealth is helping to reset a balance of power and resources that will help our communities in the long term have what we need through a self-determined process to survive and sustain ourselves. We often get caught up on thinking about a good grant and an effective grant. And as you were saying at the start of the show, Tim, that 5%, I want the 95%. I want your grant and I also want capital. I want folks to divest from these harmful and extractive industries and actually write large checks out of their endowments and hand that money over to these Native and Black and Latino and other communities of color-led intermediaries that are doing this work already embedded in community. That's the way that we decolonize wealth and like shift wealth in a way that is like closing the race wealth gap. God, yes. We've got some affirmative comments on the YouTube chat, and we also are coming up on time. So one last question. Uh, any parting thoughts as we come in to land the plane now? We're out of time, so please check out the website, decolonizingwealth.com. Information about the fund is there. And I just encourage everyone to start their journey. This is not about whether or not you work in philanthropy or a nonprofit sector. We are all called to be leaders and agents of change. And it starts with our families. We need to do this work of healing as individuals. We need to do it with our families. And we need to do it with each other. So everyone, I'm asking you to have grace toward your fellow human beings during this crazy time. Spread the love and find some way to get involved in supporting in this moment. We heal through giving. And so I've found my sustainability and healing in this moment is by running these funds and knowing that I'm doing my part to, to give back and to help take care of others. And so that's what we've all got to do in this moment. Thank you so much for being on the episode. If you didn't know, it's a huge honor to have you on the episode. Again, Decolonizing Wealth, Edgar's book is available. Go to the website. Thank you so much for taking time to spend some of it with us this morning. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me on. Continue the Work Should Suck Live adventure with us on our next episode when we're joined by Dina Hagag, President and CEO of United States Artist. Miss us in the meantime? You can download more Work Should Suck episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice, and rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck live episodes over on workshouldn'tsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.